You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we confess you are everything. And we know that you are with us because you are present with your people. And yet we ask that you'd give us eyes to see hearts that believe that you indeed are present. Help us to see our great need of you and to know that you have met us, Lord Jesus, in our great need. Help us as we open your word to understand, teach us, speak to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray, that we might be built up and encouraged in every way that we need for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Uh, we're going to jump right in. You can turn to Luke's Gospel. Uh, it's on page 152 of the Blue Bibles being handed out by some of our strike team. Um, if you need a Bible, some folks will be coming around and you can follow along. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. And I know he just stepped out, but I'm going to embarrass him briefly. If you see Charlie, who was playing bass this morning, uh, it's his 40th birthday today. So, oh, well, there he is. I thought he went the other direction. He snuck over here. So if you see him, uh, 40 punches in the arm per person. I don't know. There's like probably 250 in here, maybe a little bit more right now. So that'll hurt. Uh, yeah, let's wait till second service because he has to play bass. Second service too. So wish Charlie happy birthday. Uh, welcome to the old man club, my friend. Um, turn to Luke's Gospel chapter 18. Uh, that's where we're going to start today. And as you're turning to Luke 18, finding your way there, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever had this thought in your mind, life would be easier if I just had blank and just fill in the blank with whatever you want? As a kid, as a kid, you think, well, if I just had that thing, right? Or if I just got, if I just got into that group of, of friends or I got on that team, did you think that as a kid? Maybe, maybe then the doors would open up. Maybe then life would be a little easier or leave, at least a little more fun. As an adult, maybe you think, if I could just get into the right school or the right program, if I just had that, that next better job, then I could afford that, you know, non-hoopty. Anyone? I just love driving hoopties. Just drive them until they fall apart and get another one. But you think, right, like if I just had that nicer job or if I, if I, if I just got that pay raise, that, that promotion, that, that, that's what I'm looking for, then I could maybe afford that, that slightly larger house or maybe I could be just more secure or maybe a little happier. You ever think anything like that? I'm sure you have because you're a normal human being. Because there's a measure of that that's true, right, to a certain extent. If you... If you make that team or get into that group of friends, it might open up opportunities that you would not have otherwise had. If you get into that program or they hire you for that job, you may find an increase in earning potential. That, that might actually mean that you could buy a slightly nicer car or go on that vacation to a place warmer and a little further south than Alexandria, <laughs> Minnesota, right? No offense to Alexandria. It's just not, you know, the tropical paradise that you're hoping for. 
right? You wouldn't have to only opt for the off-brand cereal. You could get the real, <laughs> get an amen from the off, like you could get the real Captain Crunch, which we all know is superior, right? There's a reality that, that money, to a degree, can make at least some parts of our lives, if I can use this term, easier. Money affords you certain things. I, I don't think that's a very controversial statement to make. And the reason I bring it up here is because in our passage today, we get to see an interaction between Jesus and a young man who is apparently very wealthy. And he seems to be asking a pretty sincere question as he comes to Jesus. He asks Jesus, how can I inherit eternal life? If you've noticed a theme, ever since we jumped back into Luke's gospel at the beginning of January... There are those who are coming to Jesus, and, and the, the thrust of his teaching seems to be around the kingdom of God. There's confusion and questions and interest and excitement around the kingdom of God. How does it work? What is it? And this man seems to be asking a similar thing. How does one get eternal life? How does one enter the kingdom of God? How does someone find salvation? And what we'll see is that this rich man has an assumption about life on earth based on his situation that he attempts to apply to eternal life. He's got an idea about how temporary life works, and he's trying to make it work for eternal life as well, as if the kingdom of God operates like the kingdoms of earth do. But I think we're going to see as we read this passage that Jesus' answer to this man, his answer to his disciples who are listening in, and if we have ears to hear today, his answer to us. Jesus' answer is both weighty and wonderful. So let's read our text and then we'll get after it. Luke 18, we're going to read verses 18 through 30. Um, it'll be on the screen. I just want to invite you to follow along on the screen or in your Bibles as well. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Luke 18, starting in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, he said, that is, asked Jesus, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it then said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time 
and in the age to come, eternal life. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, this interaction between Jesus and this rich young man is recorded not only here in Luke, but also in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's as well. So I just want to make a note that all three of these gospel writers are giving an account uh, of the life and ministry of Jesus from different perspectives and writing to different audiences, and all three of them record this interaction. That speaks to its importance, its significance. I just don't want us to, to, to miss that, that if it's repeated multiple times, we should probably pay attention. Here in Luke 18, in our passage, we read the word saved once, Twice in our passage, we read the phrase eternal life, and three times in this passage, we read the phrase the kingdom of God. All of them are kind of referencing the same big idea. They're talking about salvation. They're talking about eternal life. In Mark's account of this little interaction, this young man comes running up to Jesus with some kind of emotion, kneels down in front of him, kind of pleading with him. This man who has attained some level of authority is referred to as a ruler. He seems to humble himself before Jesus and ask this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we're going to get into it here in a second, but but you saw as we read it, hearing what Jesus has to tell him after he asks his question, the end of the story is this young guy walks away sad. Why? Why? Here's the big idea today. It is impossible to earn salvation. To to this point, this young man's wealth has paved the way to probably many good things in his life. And here he's asking a spiritual question, and he walks away disappointed. Because even though he has learned the secret to earning money, or at least making money work for him, He comes to find out that no amount of money, no amount of hard work is enough to earn eternal life. He can't procure it. He can't go get it in ways that he's familiar with. So so I'll say it this way. Salvation is impossible. It's impossible. That's what we need to wrestle with today. That salvation is impossible for us no matter how hard uh, we may try. And that's also the beauty here in Luke 18. Remember I said it's both weighty and wonderful? It's weighty because salvation is impossible for us, and it's wonderful because there's beauty in Jesus' words, because Jesus overcomes the impossible and gives eternal life by grace through faith in Him. That's what I want us to kind of wrestle with today. So first, let's look at the impossibility of salvation. Salvation is impossible. That's the first big idea today. This man comes up to Jesus and he asks the right question to the right person. He sees Jesus as someone who can answer this question. And he asks a pretty good one. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's flaws in his question. We'll get into that. But I need eternal life. I recognize that. So how do I get it? And Jesus' response is interesting. He says two things which might catch us off guard if you've read this passage before. First one, Jesus says, is, well, why do you call me good? This young man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? One, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, Jesus says. And two, Jesus goes back to the commandments. 
And then tells him, well, he must sell all that he has, every possession, and give it to the poor. So, so let's talk about those for a second here. Because what Jesus, I think, is doing is getting to the heart of this young man right away. His question and Jesus' answer to his question expose what's going on under the surface of this young guy. First, Jesus turns the question on him and says, why do you call me good? Now, it doesn't appear that this guy has a deep understanding of the, what theologians call the hypostatic union, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He doesn't quite understand this. This man sees a popular, maybe somewhat controversial rabbi teaching with boldness and authority, performing all sorts of miracles and signs and wonders, and he must say to himself, well, this guy must be something... He must be some kind of spiritual. He must be some kind of good because, well, the proof is all around him. But Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God alone is good. And here's the key here. Jesus isn't primarily talking about himself. He's pushing on the heart of this young man. Jesus is pressing on the young man's assumptions about what makes somebody good. That's why he asks the question. In this day and age, and honestly not a whole lot different from our day and age, in this day, if you had wealth and material uh, comforts, that equaled God must be pleased with me, blessing. In our day, we mistake happiness for blessing all the time. If you were really wealthy in this context of Luke 18, that must mean well, man, God must be really pleased with you. He must approve of you. Which is interesting because Jesus is not a wealthy man. We're told he was actually quite ordinary. And yet he taught with authority. He drew a crowd. He was compelling. So there was something about Jesus that this rich young man saw that made him assume Jesus was a good man. And what Jesus is pressing on here is that this young ruler is seeing Jesus much like he sees himself. Only a person who was good can do what you do. I'm a good person. You're a good person. You're like me. We're good people. So good teacher, how must I get eternal life? And Jesus pushes back on his assumption about what makes somebody good. Why do you say that I'm good? Jesus asks. And it's because this rich young ruler apparently sees himself as a pretty good person. If you were to ask most people in your life if they're a good person, they'd probably generally say, yeah, pretty, pretty good. You know, generally I got my flaws, but I'm okay. Right? Jesus is pressing on this guy because he has a very wrong view of himself. Part of what makes salvation impossible is a wrong view of self. We talked about it last week. For those of you who are here and those of you who remember, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. It's, it's the needy who need a Savior. And this man doesn't think he needs a Savior. Nothing needs to change in his life. He's got a lot of great stuff. He would just like eternal life as well. He's asking, one good man to another good man, I'd like to add eternal life to what I already have. 
So Jesus is pressing on his definition of what makes someone good. And then Jesus says something else which is interesting. He says, you, you know the, the commandments, right? You know what Moses told your fathers in the wilderness? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, honor your parents. And the rich young ruler says, yeah, 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 I, I know all of those things. I've kept every one of those since I was a kid. We're good there. Do you see the problem? Part of what makes salvation impossible is a wrong view of self. The other part is a wrong view of the law. He thinks that his list, his law-keeping list, if you will, is pretty good. So if he's kept all these things that Moses wrote down, then he's like, well, I'm good. I checked the boxes. I'm good. I am acceptable before God because I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. I don't steal. I don't lie. And I love my parents. So therefore, I'm good. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't know the heart of this man already. But he draws it out of them. He, he essentially makes this man say the quiet part out loud. One thing you still lack, Jesus says. One thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will receive treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Maybe that strikes you as interesting or a bit strange. Is Jesus telling this man that he needs to add another work to his life? in order to be acceptable before God. The one thing you need to do is to sell all your stuff. And so if, if I sell all my stuff, then I'll be acceptable before God. Is, is Jesus telling him to trust in some law, if I can use that term, lowercase l, to, to save him? Like if he did one more right thing, then he would get the inheritance that he's looking for? Is Jesus telling him he actually can be good enough? This is a question we should wrestle with when we come to a text like this. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, go sell all that you have, and then you will have eternal life. He says, no, 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 go sell all that you have, and then you will get, have treasure in heaven. Jesus is drawing a distinction, a line, between the treasure that this guy has here in this life on earth, the material wealth, the material treasure that he's trusting in, and what Jesus calls treasure in heaven. So no, I don't think Jesus is making a new rule for him that you can attain heaven by way of material poverty any more than you can attain heaven by way of material wealth. He's not saying that. I think he's exposing the heart of this rich young ruler. See, this rich guy is comparing himself to everyone else. And compared to other people, he's pretty good. But compared to God, he's not, Right? He has a wrong view of self. He has a wrong view of God's law, which ultimately means he has a wrong view of God. He might be really good at keeping the letter of the law, especially on the big things, right? The really bad sins like adultery and murder. But what's being exposed in his heart in this interaction is his failure on the very first commandment that God gave Moses. That you shall have no other gods before me. He loves his stuff, and it's become for him an idol. And so when Jesus says, go sell your stuff, he's essentially telling him, go kill your idol and come and follow me. Verse 23, when the young ruler heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. 
Notice the descriptors there. He was extremely wealthy, and he became very sad. The language there gives the connotation of deep grief when he recognizes what is required of him, if I can use that term. Mark 10, in Mark's example, or uh, telling of this interaction, Mark says he went away deeply, or excuse me, full of sorrow. He walked away full of sorrow. Essentially, his shoulders and his head were slumped over. He was deeply grieved. Jesus told him that in order to gain eternal life, he needed to let go of his idol of stuff. And he walks away sad because his heart in that moment was exposed. And he was told what he needed to do, but it was just something he couldn't do. His wealth, in this case, had too great a hold on his heart. Pastor and author Tim Keller says of this little interaction between Jesus and this man, Jesus smashed two of the rich young ruler's assumptions that Christianity is something you can add and something you can do. Jesus just crushed that assumption. Eternal life isn't an add-on to an otherwise pretty good life. It changes who you are. There's no amount of law-keeping or good works that can be done to gain Salvation, to gain eternal life. Money makes a lot of things easier and gets you into a lot of places, but not the kingdom. And no, he can't be good enough. In this case, selling his stuff was a step toward helping him set aside his worship of stuff. That's what makes this passage so weighty is that this young man walks away grieving. I mean, think about it from the disciples' perspective for a second. A young, excited, passionate, young, wealthy person with influence comes to Jesus, essentially sounding like, I'd like to be on this team. Right? He, he's a candidate for discipleship. He seemed to have a sincere desire for spiritual things. He, he had more than a cursory grasp of the Old Testament. He knew what, what the commandments were. He knew the law of Moses. He had cash. That's always a benefit. Right? I mean, just think of how his wealth could be used to advance the mission of Jesus. Right? And yet he walks away sad. Because despite his material riches, he is suffering from spiritual poverty. Jesus continues. Look at verse 24. Jesus, seeing that the young man had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Of God. Two statements Jesus makes here. First, he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This is a pretty challenging statement, I think. Why? Well, I, I think it's in part challenging. It's, it's difficult for those who have much because they don't need much. They have all they need. Life is generally comfortable. Right? If they want something, they go get it. You realize this as an adult when it comes to like Christmas time. As a grown-up, my, my, my mother will ask me, well, what do you want for Christmas? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm an adult. Socks? If I need something as an adult, what do I do? I go to the store and I buy it. Right? I don't need anything. But remember, 
it's only needy people who get the kingdom. We just read it last week. Can you remember the first time you went to the grocery store and the bill came, like the, the cashier rung everything up and said, that'll be, and the first time it was over $100? Do you, do you remember that? Maybe now it's like you go buy milk and they're like, $100. And you're like, well, okay. Inflation, you know, like eggs. Are you kidding me, the price of eggs? I like eggs, but good grief. Right? I, a- Amy tells this story. My wife Amy tells this, this story. When we, when we were first married, we weren't married very long, um, didn't have a ton of money, trying to pay off our college loans as fast as we could. And so we tried to budget our money fairly carefully, like this much for gas and this much for food, and etc. And one time she tells a story that she went to Cashwise um, because we lived nearby at the time, and she went in and got what we needed, and the, the, the cashier rang it all up, and it was like $115, and she didn't know what to do. I mean, she paid it, she paid it, and then went out to the car and cried because she's like, do we even have $100? Right, that was kind of the mentality. It was risky because we didn't have much. Now we have five kids. I don't think we can leave Costco for under $250. I mean, when it's like 200 bucks, you're like, it starts with a two. We're winning at Costco. We didn't buy meat or eggs or milk, but we're winning at Costco, right? When you have little, you're far more aware of your need. You're far more aware of your limitations, right? When you have much, you might not be any less aware of your limits, but you're far more free and more self-assured, right? You can just go to Costco and not even think about it because I can buy eggs. I'm rolling in dough, right? When you have much, you're more self-assured. In this case, this rich young ruler, he walked away sad because what was exposed in his heart was his love of stuff, his comfort, his money was of more value to him than what Jesus was offering, which was, come follow me. It was Solomon, David's son, who wrote Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Just listen to Solomon's wisdom here. Two things I ask of you, Solomon writes, deny them not to me before I die. He says, remove from me falsehood and lying. And then he says this, give me neither poverty nor riches. And he explains what that means. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Solomon is saying, I don't want to be overly poor, Lord, that I might be tempted to steal and therefore dishonor you, but don't give me so much that I would deny that I need you. Give me exactly what I need. Sounds a little bit like Jesus' encouragement to his disciples to pray, doesn't it? Give us today our daily bread. It's difficult for those with abundance to enter the kingdom because abundance makes it harder to see the reality of our deep need. That's why it's hard. In fact, it would be easier, Jesus says, this is the second part, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, you may have heard it said that there was a gate outside Jerusalem and a camel would kneel down to have to get under it. But in all my study, I think that's mostly myth. I think Jesus is actually just speaking with metaphorical language here. And a first century needle is not going to be as precise as a modern one. I almost brought a sewing needle, but even that's pretty useless. Probably a little bit slightly larger hole. Think of like an upholstery needle or something like that. Jesus is literally saying, I think, take a needle 
and its tiny little hole for thread and try to get a camel through there. What would you say if I told you that? That ain't happening, right? That is not happening. It's impossible. And I think that's actually the point. Jesus is saying it's not just difficult, it's impossible. It is impossible for you to think that you can get your way into the kingdom. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not very wealthy. Good thing this passage isn't talking about me. Maybe that's you. But a couple things. First, let me just frame that out for you just, just briefly. You and I are amongst the most wealthy human beings on the planet in human history. I don't care what your bank account balance says right now. How many faucets in your house do you have supplying water, hot or cold? If your answer is one or more, you are amongst this one-seventh richest people in economic terms on the planet. You have more economic wealth with one running faucet in your house than six billion people on the planet, essentially. So just for a clear view of reality, we have much. I just want to say that. But two, more than that, don't for a second think that the heart problem for this man was just money. It wasn't a money problem. It was a worship problem. This man couldn't let go of his stuff and embrace Jesus. So for you, maybe money doesn't have a, a great grip on your heart. Praise God. Maybe for you, part of the problem isn't how, how much you have, but how generous you are how philanthropic you are. It's not how much you have, it's how much you give away. That's what tells you how good you are. Maybe it's something else. Anything that occupies our hearts and our minds and our affections more than Christ is an idol. So the question is, from a passage like this, what are the things that we absolutely cannot let go of? Those may very well be the things that Jesus is saying that you need to surrender and put down that you might follow him. And Jesus is saying it would be easier to get a camel through a needle than for someone in their own power to put down their idols, to change their own desires, and to follow him. Salvation is impossible. It's impossible in your own strength and in your own power. The prophet Jeremiah asked a question in judgment of the people of Israel. Can a leopard change its spots? Is it possible for a leopard to decide, today I'm going to be striped like a zebra? Can a tiger take on the scales of a fish instead? Ask any little kid in the room and they'll tell you, of course not, that is silly. Well, they might draw a tiger with fish scales, but then they'll tell you that probably doesn't exist. They might tell you they can run fast like a leopard. But of course, the leopard can't change its spots. The Apostle Paul says something similar in, in Romans chapter 3. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And as you can imagine, this statement from Jesus of the impossibility of eternal life for someone who seems to have it all together was probably pretty shocking. If this guy, who appears to be the right kind of person, 
who seems like a really good guy, God has clearly blessed him. If he can't get in, then what hope is there for us? Right? It really seems impossible. And this is where Jesus gives one of the most remarkable statements in all of Luke's gospel. He says this, verse 28, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And that's the good news here. Verse 28, if our first big idea is that salvation is impossible, then verse 28 tells us that salvation is possible. That the God who created your heart and mine is the only one who can change that heart. The scripture that Josh read earlier from the prophet Ezekiel God is speaking a promise through Ezekiel, Ezekiel excuse me, to his wayward people, the people who have profaned God's name, who have made his name a, 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 a swear word, essentially, amongst the nations. And God tells them this, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will do that. God says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. This Old Testament promise from Ezekiel sounds a little bit like Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just read this slightly extended passage from the Apostle Paul. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace... You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. What is impossible with man is possible with God. This is the gospel. And for some of us, we're, we're really coming to the realization of this for maybe the first time. That the only way to salvation, the only way to new and everlasting life, to a new heart, to change desires, that only comes through surrender to Christ Jesus. That he died for our sins so that we now lay down our worship of everything else. We lay down our whole life and take hold of this gift of grace that he offers. And for those of us who've maybe walked with Jesus for a while, maybe this passage is doing some work on your heart like it's done on mine this week. Where have we let the comforts of life obscure our vision of who we truly are and who God is. Where is it easy for us to see ourselves as self-sufficient? Where are we even unknowingly worshiping other things? Where are we trusting in our own good works to prove that we're worthy of God's love rather than trusting Jesus who alone is worthy on our behalf? Christians struggle here. We know we get into the kingdom by grace but we try our darndest to stay in by our own works. But that's not how this works, Jesus says. If I could read once more uh, the end of that larger section from Ephesians 2, verse 10, which I left off before. 
Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus tells this rich young ruler not only to sell his possessions, but don't miss it. At the end, he says, and follow me. There is God-ordained work that we should walk in with spirit-empowered effort, but we are not earning anything. We are just becoming more of who we are in Christ as we put aside our idols and follow Jesus. And here's the sometimes overlooked blessing in this passage. Look at verse 28. Peter says, See, we have left our homes and followed you. Which I kind of find a little funny. It's hard to not pick on Peter a little bit here. Like, did you not just hear the thing before about not comparing yourself to others like the Pharisee? Right? And Peter's like, well, we left all our stuff to follow you, Lord. He might be a little defensive. I don't know. Maybe he's being sincere. We don't know. Can't tell the inside. I'm going to ask him a question in heaven. Hey, Peter, what do you mean by that? Like, what's your motives? But what he's telling him is the truth, right? If you remember way back at the beginning of Luke, what did they do? They left their livelihoods. They left their nets by the shore and followed Jesus. They have indeed left everything, the comforts of home, their families, to follow Jesus. Jesus. And then verse 29, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, there is nobody who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more, listen to this, in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The gospel promise that Jesus gives here to the one who follows him, gives up all and follows him, is that he will receive back many times more, not only in the age to come, that is in eternity, but also, Jesus says, in this time, in this time, that there are blessings, there is treasure to be had here that is worth far more than gold or silver, that is of greater value than anything that we could give up. See, we don't often think about that. We often go, and I understand why we do, because life is hard. We often go to the glory that's to be revealed, the glory to come. And don't hear me diminishing that. Let's, let's look to that. But let's not overlook the blessings here. I've told this story before, but, but a friend of mine, uh, Jack, was, was diagnosed with an incurable lung disease. Ultimately ended up getting essentially a last-minute lung transplant that extended his life another seven years or so. And toward the end of those seven years, as his body began to break down and he was facing death, I got to sit with him and ask him, hey, if you could go back. I've, I've shared this before. I want to share it again. If you could go back and not have this thing happen, to not have this disease, to not have to have this transplant, that you'd be able to be with your wife and your son's but you'd also then lose all that you've learned in these last seven years, would you do it? He said, not a chance. Not a chance. It stinks to be leaving his wife and his boys behind, but he said he would not trade the intimacy with the Lord, what he knows of the Lord, what the, the love of God for him, 
all the gospel opportunities that were presented to him in that window of time, all that God had done through this disease in the lives of others, he said, I wouldn't trade any of it for one more minute of life on this planet. Even in suffering, he found a blessing many times more even in this life. It was missionary and martyr Jim Elliott. He lost his life on the mission field, bringing the gospel to a then unreached people group. He famously said this quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Ultimately ended up giving his life to a group of people who would later become followers of Jesus. His wife, Elizabeth, would later write this, Everything, if given to God, can become your gateway to joy, including the martyr's death of your husband, a gateway to joy. And not only will those who lay down their lives and follow Jesus receive back far more, even in this life, but there is also hope and incomparable glory in the life to come. Jim Elliot, my friend Jack, the Apostle Paul, a whole host of saints who have been saved by grace and have loved the Lord more than they love this world are all right now partaking in the glory of the risen Christ, whole and healed and fully present in the kingdom of God. On their own, impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The most miraculously impossible thing that God does is by His grace, save sinners. It is a miracle every time. And by the power of His grace, He changes sinners into saints. So let's hear Jesus' words today and not trust in ourselves, but instead put down our idols and take hold of this offer of grace by faith and follow Him joyfully receiving whatever treasure He desires to put in our hands both here and in the life to come. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful that what is absolutely impossible for us is not only possible for you, but is sure. That there's a promise wrapped up here We ask, Jesus, that you would overcome our doubts, that you would overcome the hardness of our hearts, that you would do what we cannot in removing the heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. Holy Spirit, would you be gracious to loosen our grip on the things that grip us, that draw away our time and our affection and our worship, that we would see ourselves rightly as holy, undone, and in need, and we would see you truly as good and offering to us all that we cannot get for ourselves. Thank you for a picture of this love in the bread and the cup, and I pray that as we come to the communion table that we'd be reminded of this glorious reality that you have overcome 
all of our sin by taking it on yourself so that we might now be found in you, that we might attain the inheritance that is yours that you now give to us of eternal life. Encourage our hearts. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, as we come to the communion table that we might confess and walk in the light and enjoy deep fellowship with you because of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.